All right, well, we continue on in our study of redemption accomplished and applied, and you'll see a handout uh, that I've tried to furnish to you all that kind of gives an outline of what we'll be looking at for the remainder of this study in redemption accomplished and applied. And um, tonight what we're going to do is just kind of give an overview of the order of application, the order of application. And so as we come to that, the order of application, we transition from the redemption accomplished portion of our study to the redemption applied portion of our study. You remember the title of Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and we've spent now a number of weeks, I think eight or eight or so weeks looking at redemption accomplished, the accomplishment of redemption, and now we're going to look at the application of that redemption. And in this lesson tonight, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to establish that there is such an order of redemption's application that Scripture does indeed give us an order to application. And then we're going to give a brief overview of that order in its entirety. So you're looking at this handout and you see... A list of things there, and uh, I'm going to not give an exhaustive and thorough definition of of these things tonight, but over the next number of weeks, however long it takes us to finish out uh, this series, we will look at all of these things in depth. But tonight, we're just going to kind of give the the framework, if you will. Uh, But before we do that, before we jump into an overview, we need to take a step back and we need to ask a, a question that's a bit more broad and preliminary. And that is this question, why must we speak of redemption in terms of accomplishment and application? Why must we speak of redemption in those categories, in those terms? Well, what is redemption? Somebody give me maybe a one-word definition. What is redemption, a synonym for it? Salvation, okay? Salvation. Well, how does God redeem? How does He save? By applying it to your life, um, how else? How does God redeem sinners? The work of Christ, right. Through Christ. Christ accomplished redemption. He accomplished it. And what, what is that theological term, that single theological term that we've been using to encapsulate the finished work of Christ, His, his death, burial, and resurrection primarily, that accomplished redemption? It's been in every one of our studies. We've talked about its necessity, its nature, its extent. What, if, what, what was that theological term for the work of Christ? The atonement. Right, the atonement. When we talk about redemption accomplished, we're talking primarily about the atonement. So whenever you uh, see that word, you'll see it in your Bible, but you'll also see it in, in Christian books and theological books. When you hear people talk about the atonement, they're talking about the work of Christ in coming to earth, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, being buried, being risen again, ascending back up into heaven. That is the atonement. Now let me ask you this. When was the atonement made? When he went to the cross. When he went to the cross. So about 2,000 years ago. That's when the atonement was made. So the atonement is not an abstract concept it is an objective historical event, right? It's not just this um, 
theological abstract principle. No, you can look on a timeline and you can point to there is the atonement. Okay, so now do you see the problem? Do you see why we must talk about not only redemption accomplished, but also redemption applied? The problem is that none of us were alive 2,000 years ago. None of, and none of us were born redeemed. So the million dollar question is this. And this is a, a, a major fundamental question to Christianity. How, how do we become personal partakers of something that Christ accomplished before we were ever born? How does the atonement of Christ made 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me today? How is the good news of the gospel good news for me? That's the question that we're trying to answer. Um, What what, what kind of answer do you get when you you talk to an unbeliever and you say to them, well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, and so on and so forth, and they say, well, so what? What does that have to do with me? Right? Well, it has everything to do with you if you understand how God applies redemption. Therefore, when we talk about the application of redemption, we're talking about how what was accomplished by Christ for his people is applied personally and individually to his people. Okay? When we think of redemption's application, we must not think of it as one simple individual act but rather it is a series of acts, similar to the accomplishment of redemption. The the accomplishment of redemption was not one individual act. Yes, we can look on a timeline and we can say 2,000 years ago, in the totality of the person work of Christ, there was the atonement. But we've covered before uh, that there wasn't really just one thing that we can say was, well, that's it. Well, it was his death on the cross. Certainly his death on the cross was essential. Uh, And we we will say, well, we were saved by his death, and that's accurate. But the only reason why we could be saved by his death is because he lived a sinless life. And the only reason we could say we were saved by his death is because, well, he didn't stay dead, but he was resurrected. So you see that when we talk about the work of Christ, there are, are several things that are absolutely essential that he performed in order for him to be the Savior. Uh, Namely, the virgin birth, right? His sinless life, his full obedience to the law of God, his substitutionary death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. All of these things are essential. You cannot remove any one of these things and keep the gospel, right? So when we talk about the application of redemption, there's also a number of things there in how God saves sinners that we need to understand, okay? Um... All of these things have their own distinct meaning and function and purpose, and they all have their own relationship to one another. Just like the the sinless life of Christ has a relationship to his death, his death has a relationship to his resurrection, so too does, for instance, regeneration has a relationship to conversion, conversion has a relationship to justification, right? Uh, So we need to keep these things in in our minds, and we need to understand how they relate to one another. Oftentimes, you'll hear people talk about when they, quote-unquote, got saved, right? Uh, You say, what's your testimony? Well, I got saved 10 years ago, or I got saved whenever, or, or, you know, this is the day I got saved. 
And uh, I, I don't object to that terminology. Uh, that, that's certainly true. Um, but what they're referring to oftentimes is only a portion of redemption's application. Right? Um, the application of redemption involves more than just the moment in time when you first believed. Or it involves more than just placing your faith in Christ. It involves more than just repenting of sin. Okay? It's also important to see, when we talk about the application of redemption and the accomplishment of redemption, how each person of the Trinity is emphasized in the various aspects of redemption. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The conception or the design of redemption was primarily the work of who? The Father. The Father. It was the Father who, before the foundation of the world, chose a people in Christ and issued the eternal decree to redeem. It was as if, and we have to be careful how we illustrate and and use metaphorical language to talk about the interworkings of the Trinity, but it was as if the Father was in heaven and stood up and said, I have a desire to save sinners. And not just anonymous sinners, but I, I want to save Alan Roney and Scott Williams and Tanner Dykin and Jacob Sherrill and David Nicky O'Connor. Right? I want to save these sinners. But there's a problem with that. The Father has this plan that He wants to accomplish, but He cannot do it at the expense of His own attributes. The chief attribute, the royal diadem, really the essence of God is His holiness. God is holy. He's righteous. He's just. And He can't just save sinners because He feels like it. and So He's just going to sweep their sins under the rug and everything's hunky-dory. That's not the way redemption works. So, the accomplishment of redemption was primarily the work of who? The Son. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal with the Father, stands up and says, Father, in order to accomplish your will to redeem, I will go into the world and, and be made likened unto man, yet without sin, and I will live a righteous life, and I will die for their sins, and I will give them my righteousness so that you can redeem them without sacrificing, not, not only without sacrificing, but by fulfilling your attributes of holiness and justice. Okay? So the Son purposes to go. But there's still another problem. And that problem is this, okay? Jesus, you're going to go into the world and you're going to die for them on the cross, but how are they going to find out about it? How are they going to come to to partake of this? And so the Holy Spirit says, I too will go. This is why the church, historically, uh, some of you would know the Latin term, filioque, right? Proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is why the, the Spirit said, okay, after the Father has purposed, and after the Son has agreed to accomplish, I will go as well. And I will go into the world, and I will apply the finished work of Christ, the benefits of His death, individually and specifically to each one of their hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So, when we talk about now 
the application of redemption, we're really launching into a study of the person and work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the application or the accomplishment of redemption. You're talking about the person and work of Christ. Now we're talking about primarily what the Spirit does in our redemption. So, let me first just establish to you that there is such an order. It's really self-explanatory, but I want to prove it to you. Okay, From beginning to end, redemption is the work of God. Our God is a God of order. He is not the author of confusion, therefore He is the author of order. The application of redemption has a coherent order because of the one who applies it. When God does anything, He does it orderly. Uh, The order of application is identified through the discipline of systematic theology. Systematic theology is simply uh, when we, we, we peruse the Scriptures and we search the entirety of Scripture and we formulate the doctrines that are taught all throughout Scripture. Most all Bible doctrines uh, are not taught just in one place. The totality and the fullness of those doctrines is not taught just in one place. So if you're going to form a, a robust doctrine, robust theological doctrine, you have to search the totality of, of Scripture. So when we talk about redemption and how it's applied, there's not just one passage that we would go to to say, here's the application of redemption. But we, we look throughout all of our Bibles and we see how it is that God saves sinners. And we piece that together. And students of the Bible have surveyed Scripture to identify all of the acts involved in redemption's application. And what they've seen is that there's a logical order. And this logical order, the order of application, is known by the term ordo salutis. Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. Um, When we talk about the accomplishment of redemption, we use the phrase historia salutis. Uh, We mentioned that in a a few lectures ago when we were in this series, but the historia salutis refers to the historical things that happened in time that accomplished salvation. But when we talk about how it's applied, uh, we're, we're talking about the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Now, the fact that there is such an order really needs no defense, okay? Uh, just, just think about it with me for a moment. It would be absolutely absurd to think that someone can be sanctified before they're justified. To think that God is taking someone who is a lost person and conforming them into the image of Christ, right? It's just silly when we think about it like that. Or to think that Someone is going to be regenerated after they're glorified, right? Lost people don't go to heaven and get saved in heaven, right? So we see here there is an order. But there are biblical texts uh, that describe these various acts of redemption's application, and they they imply their order. For instance, John 3 and verse 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, this implies what? That regeneration precedes glorification. He must first be born again, and then he can see the kingdom of God. John 1.12, But as many as received him, received Christ, to them he gave 
the, uh, the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. What does that imply? Well, that implies that one must receive Christ before they can be adopted as a child of God. Ephesians 1 and verse 13, In Him you also trusted, notice this word, after. What's that? That's an that's a order word, right? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This implies, what? That we must first hear the word of truth before we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. After we hear the word of truth, then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, that there is an order of redemption uh, must be admitted by all. Okay, The contention begins when we seek to identify what that order is. And if you're sitting here thinking, what in the world does this have, how does this have any practical relevance to me as a Christian? Let's now look at this order, and I I think it'll become quite apparent why it's important that we understand the proper order of redemption's application. As I said, the rest of this series is going to be devoted to a much more thorough consideration of each of these acts. But for now, I just want to give a brief overview of this order in its entirety. And let me say this, and this is very important, so please uh, uh, underscore this and remember this. It must be noted that most of these acts are separated by a logical distinction, not a chronological distinction. Here's what I mean by that. Most of these acts are not separated by time, They're separated by a logical relationship of cause and effect. Okay? For instance, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption, the ones that are in green on your handout, they all happen at the same time. A a sinner is not called one day and then regenerated the next day and then they got to wait till next Tuesday to be converted, and then a month later they're justified, and then sometime after that they're adopted. It's not a chronological order. It's not that they're separated by time. When we talk about the order of these acts, we're referring to their logical progressions as causing and affecting one another. Okay? Now, open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 8. Romans 8 This really is the best single key text that demonstrates the Ordo Salutis. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Notice what what the Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, notice the language that the Apostle Paul uses here. Tell me if you can see a list that has a logical order. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Notice there that Paul gives us a list that describes the order of redemption's application from beginning to end. Uh, In verse 28, he mentions that all of this happens according to 
His purpose, God's purpose. And that refers to the Father's conception of redemption in the eternal decree of God. So everything, both the accomplishment and the application of redemption, flow out of that decree. You'll remember when we talked about the necessity of the atonement, we said it had a consequent absolute necessity, right? Uh, Because the the reason why there is an atonement is simply because God has a decree to, to save sinners. And why does God have a decree to save sinners? There was one attribute that we said... Uh, compelled God to have that decree to save sinners? What attribute is that? For God so loved the world, right? So the atonement springs from God's loving purpose before the foundations of the world to save sinners. But then notice, in verse 29, Paul goes on and he says, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, So, this is really the fountain from which the application of redemption springs. You'll see on the handout, election is mentioned as the the bedrock of this mountain of salvation, Um, but it's not... It is considered in the Ordo Salutis, but there's a distinction in that, in that election is not one of the personal acts of the Holy Spirit that we're going to discuss in the remainder of the series. But it is foundational... To, to the both the application and the accomplishment of redemption. Um, and then, when you look at verse 30 of Romans 8, you see this list of events. It's often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. These events have their origin in the eternal foreknowledge of God, and they terminate in glorification. So the application of redemption begins and ends with an act of God. And this text also gives us the, the best outline of the order salute salutus. So, let's just look at them briefly. So, uh, we ha- of course we have election, but then we have calling, or I'm going to put up here the effectual call. Effectual calling. This is the the first of the personal acts in the order salutus. The effectual calling. All of the elect were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, Christ came to die for them on the cross. But all of God's people are individually called at specific times in their lives. Uh, This call is not the outward call of the gospel that is given in the preaching and the distribution of the gospel. Um, It's not the outward call. This, when we talk about effectual calling, we're talking about the, the inward call of the Holy Spirit, and it's effectual because it always accomplishes its purpose. Uh, John Murray says this, salvation in actual possession. And, and that's a really a key word when you talk about the application of redemption. We're talking about something that is actual. We're talking about what is real in your life. Salvation in actual possession takes its start from an efficacious summons on the part of God, and that this summons, since it is God's summons, carries in its bosom all of the operative efficacy by which it is made effective. Now, that's a a very fancy way, a very highfalutin John Murray-esque way to say that the effectual call of God brings with it all the necessary power to apply redemption. So you could look at the effectual call as... Everything else that happens is bundled up in that effectual call. Okay? Um, don't take this illustration too far, but think of it as 
Think of it as a, a line of dominoes. The effectual call is the tipping over of that first domino. And the language that Paul uses in Romans 8, it's not a a, a fragile string of redemption that could be broken at any moment. It is a chain. All those who who are called will surely receive and partake of all of these other acts. So, effectual calling is first. It it is when, when God, not only merely through hearing preaching, but personally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enters into the heart of a sinner and calls them to come to Christ. Okay? Then, next on that list is regeneration. And you're about to see just how important it is that we get this list correctly. So, next is regeneration. Regeneration is the power of the effectual call as it is seen in its ability to make alive its object. See, the Bible describes us in our natural condition as what? Dead in trespasses and sins. The reason why the call is effectual, the reason why an effectual call is necessary, is because dead men can't answer the general call. If we went out and, and preached to a graveyard, and said, get up, get out of the grave, walk around. Those bodies don't have the power to answer and respond to the call. But listen, without the power of the Holy Spirit in the effectual call, that's exactly what we're doing every time we preach. That's what we're doing. Every time we preach. That, that's why, and this is, a rabbit trail that I'm not going to go down, but this is that's why when we preach and when we share the gospel, whether you're doing it as a pastor in the pulpit or whether you're doing it as a co-worker on the job site, whenever you share the gospel, you must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, not upon your ability to persuade or your theological accuracy, uh, because the Apostle Paul himself, Jesus Christ himself, could stand before you and preach the gospel, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't effectually call you and regenerate you, you will reject it. That's right. So, we see regeneration is next. The effectual call imparts to us the ability to respond, and the impartation of new life is called regeneration. It's what Jesus is talking about when he says, except a man be born again, right? Uh, when, when you hear people talking about the new birth, the second birth, being born again. That's what they're talking about, regeneration. So we have the effectual call, and notice there's a cause and effect relationship here. So the effectual call is effectual. Why? Because it regenerates. Thirdly, and now we're going to get into the hairy aspects of this list. Thirdly is conversion or faith and Repentance. That's what conversion is. Faith and repentance. Or, I like to say, a repentant faith. A repentant faith. Because all true faith is repentant faith. So, this is the most controversial, yet it is the most foundational distinction in the Ordo Salutis. This order is what distinguishes the biblical view of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, the biblical view of salvation, from 
all false forms of salvation, specifically Arminianism and Semi-Pelagianism. We believe that regeneration precedes faith. Not chronologically, right? We don't believe that there's anybody out there that's made alive but doesn't have faith. But logically, we believe regeneration precedes faith. Before a sinner can place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Him as Savior, he must first be born again and regenerated by a, a monergistic work of God. Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5, absolutely. He saved us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. Why must regeneration precede faith? For the same reason that the effectual call is necessary. Because dead men cannot born themselves again. Do you, do you see the implication of saying that faith precedes regeneration? The implication of saying that faith precedes regeneration is saying that you birth yourself again. No, we must believe, the Scriptures teach, God must do a work in us that imparts new life and the ability to believe before we can exercise faith in Christ. Again, John 3.3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? To see the kingdom of God is what? To see it through the eye of faith. It is to believe. And unless one is first born again by the power of God, he can't see the kingdom. That's what uh, this is teaching to us. Okay? Um, if faith was the cause of regeneration, then you are the one who birthed yourself again. If faith is the cause of regeneration, then there's no need for the effectual call. But the new birth is not the result of man's choice. It is the result of God's choice. What's another portion of Scripture that might tell us or hint that faith and repentance... Are, are the effects of, not the causes of, the effectual call and regeneration. What is faith? Or let me say this, whose is faith? Where does faith come from? God. Yeah, exactly. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. But dead men don't receive gifts. And so God first makes us alive, and then gives us the gift of faith and repentance, and then our exercising faith and repentance is our response to that effectual call. How do you know if a baby is born? It cries, right? Uh, I remember when John was born, he popped out, and the very first thing the nurse did was grabbed him by the ankle and started whacking his foot so that he would cry, open up his lungs, and respond to his birth. Right? Faith and repentance are the evidences of new life. The evidences of new life. There are no stillborns in the family of God. Everyone that God regenerates cries. And that cry is faith and repentance. If someone professes to be a Christian but they don't exhibit faith and repentance, they're still dead in their sins. They haven't received new life. Uh, faith and repentance comprise the two essential aspects of conversion. And like regeneration and conversion, there's no chronological distinction between faith and repentance. Spurgeon said, you tell me which spoke on the wheel moves first, and I'll tell you what comes first, faith or repentance. Right? 
Uh, so we want to guard against the errors of, of preparationism, for instance, that say, oh, well, you've got, to, you've got to beat yourself up and flagellate yourself and have deep repentance before you can believe. You will not repent until you believe. But guess what? You, you won't believe apart from repentance either. Right? Uh, both faith and repentance, they have a, 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 an, initial, an initial foundational aspect to them. That is, there's a sense in which saving faith, it's either there or it's not there. But yet also, faith and repentance are things that we grow in throughout the Christian life. We, we want to grow in faith, and we want to grow in repentance. They are the gifts of God. Okay? The response to the effectual call. So, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, and, and all of this, again, there's not a chronological distinction. Right? It's a logical distinction. Then fourth, justification. Justification. What is justification? Justification is the single punctiliar moment when God declares a believer as righteous based on the merits of Christ. Now, why must justification come after faith? Well, because how does God justify us? Through faith. By faith. Upon faith. When we talk about justification in the Ordo Salutis, we're talking about actual justification. Uh, we're not talking about God's decree to justify. We're not talking about the work of Christ on the cross, which is the basis of our justification. We're talking about when a sinner becomes righteous in the sight of God, legally righteous in the sight of God. And when does that happen? That happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are seen by God as perfectly, spotlessly righteous as Jesus Christ is perfectly, spotlessly righteous. Amen. That's a wonderful truth, by the way. Uh, we don't believe that, well, God, God gets us started. He gives us the, the initial grace that we need to then perform the good works to earn our salvation. We don't believe that. We believe that in the moment we believe. In the moment we place our faith, we are accepted in the eyes of God. No matter what sins we have committed, no matter how low we have fallen in our depravity, faith in Christ justifies instantaneously. Romans 1.17, Romans 3.22, Romans 3.26, Romans 3.28, Romans 3.30, Romans 8.1, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.24, Philippians 3.9. It is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Justification by faith. Amen. Therefore, logically, we must say faith precedes justification. Right? And then, fifthly, adoption. Adoption is an aspect of redemption's application that is often overlooked. But what is adoption? It is the act of God wherein our hostility toward Him is removed and He receives us as a child. He receives us as a child. John 1.12 again, But as many as received Him, to them, gave him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. So we must receive Christ in order to be adopted, right? Well, how do we receive Christ? Through faith. Through faith. Um, God does not have children 
that he is hostile towards. Therefore, he only adopts those who are justified. Right? Adoption logically follows conversion justification. Sixthly, sanctification. Okay, now, let me, let me say this. One, two, three, four, and five are, are all punctiliar. That means that they happen in one moment, in one instance. They're not progressive works. And there is no chronological distinction. So, break it down. What we're doing here is, uh, is for those of you who, who have done electrical work, okay, Somebody comes to church, a lost sinner comes to church, they come in, sit on the pew, they hear the gospel, God saves them. Okay, now if you don't understand electricity, and I don't, by the way, you show me an electrical diagram, I have no idea what I'm looking at. All I know is I come in, I flip the light switch, the light comes on. That sinner comes to church, hears the gospel, God saves him, all he knows is Somebody flipped the light switch and the lights are on. What we're looking at is the electrical diagram. Because what actually happened in that sinner's soul, in his heart, was as he heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit issued an effectual call and regenerated him and put new life in him. And then that new life sprung forth in faith and repentance. And he was justified. He came into church, an enemy of God. But then he was justified. He was made righteous before God. And now that he's justified, he's adopted in the family of God, and when he leaves, he's a child of God. All that happened in this one moment. The only thing he realizes is, I now believe in Christ. Because faith is the external manifestation of all of these things. And it's the instrument that God uses to dispense saving grace. Now when we talk about sanctification, there's a sense in which that's true of sanctification. There is no chronological distinction between the beginning of our sanctification. When does God begin to sanctify you? When you're saved. saved. Not 20 years later, after you've sowed your wild oats and now you've rededicated your life. Right? Right. He begins to sanctify you the moment you believe. The difference with sanctification, though, is that sanctification is a progressive work. It is a progressive work wherein... He conforms us into the image of His Son, and He grows us in grace and faith. It begins at conversion, but it continues throughout the entirety of the Christian life. Now, if you were to say that about justification, you'd be a heretic. If you were to say that, well, God progressively justifies you over your life, uh, and then maybe before you die, your justification will be complete. Right, (laughs) yeah. You know, that's a works-based view of justification. No, Justification, punctiliar, sanctification, progressive. Now, one of the great practical issues, you want to talk about, why, why even study this? Why even study this? When we don't understand the biblical doctrine of salvation, when we don't know what the marks of true conversion are according to the Bible, we see a professing Christian living in habitual sin, and we say, well, they just need to grow in their sanctification when the reality is they were never converted to begin with. Sanctification only occurs in those who have been effectually called, born again, possess saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have been adopted as the children of God. But once it begins, it does not end until we are glorified. 
right? So, sanctification. Seventh, perseverance. Perseverance. This is closely related to sanctification. You could say that sanctification is what accomplishes our perseverance. Sanctification is the means that God uses to keep us in the faith. Perseverance is that act of God that keeps us saved. But God keeps us saved, He keeps us in the faith through the use of means. That's, that's an important point for us to understand. Um, some people will refer to perseverance as the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And there's a sense in which that's true. Uh, I prefer to say if saved, always saved. But the unfortunate product of once saved, always saved thinking in so many circles is it's caused a lot of people to think that if they make a decision one time when they're 10 years old at church camp, they can go on and live however they want to because, and they trust in that decision. Well, I know that my life's a wreck. I'm living in sin. I've, I, I haven't donned the doors of a church in 15 years. I've never read my Bible. I don't have a prayer life. I don't love God. I love my sin. But hey, I made a decision when I was 10 years old and I prayed a prayer. That's not perseverance. It's not perseverance. Now, you do not perform good works to keep yourself saved. You are not saved by works. But you are saved, and it does work. Yes, it does. Okay? This is why you should be faithful to the means of grace that God uses to sanctify you. What are some of those means? Well, Bible reading, prayer, corporate worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word. Those are the things that God uses, listen, not just to make you a better Christian, but to keep you saved. He uses those means to keep you saved. Now, he's, he's got a 100% track record. He's never lost anyone. He never will lose anyone. And some of us in our sanctification grow to higher degrees than others. Our, our sanctification is deeper in different areas and different levels. But God uses these ordinary means in the lives of all of his people. That's why when we see someone willfully, altogether, neglecting the means of God's grace, we have a right to be concerned about the state of their soul. We have, a, we have a, a cause to ask the question, well, has any of this actually happened in their life? Because those that God calls and regenerates and converts and justifies and adopts and sanctifies persevere. They persevere. And then lastly, number eight, glorification. Now, what's the, the big difference between glorification and all the other ones? When we talk about... Right. When we talk about glorification, we are talking about a chronological distinction. Okay? None of you have been glorified yet. None of you, your glorification has not started yet. Okay? Uh, some Christians live as though it had. That's another sermon for another day. Glorification is the final act in the Ordo Salutis, and it is the conclusion of redemption's application. It involves the complete redemption of our entire being, both body and soul. Let me ask you this. When does glorification happen? When God takes you home? Any other answers? If, if glorification... What's that? The second coming. Is the second, 
coming. If glorification involves, and it does, the redemption of our body, then, then even the saints who have departed and are now with the Lord are still awaiting their, their full glorification. You know? and, and that's really a beautiful picture because uh, you know, I think it just goes to show just the, the, the impartiality of our God. The day the Apostle Paul is glorified will be the day I'm glorified. And the day you're glorified, right? It, because it is that day when our bodies are raised from the dead and our, our souls are reunited with our body, but God has removed the curse of sin and all traces of corruption. And though it is that body, it's that body made new, right? Ephesians, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, he, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The final act in the application of redemption has a uh, chronological distinction. It occurs on the last day when Christ will resurrect our bodies. Now, here's the, the glorious truth about glorification. If there was no glorification, I would not be excited about the second coming. Because in this sin-cursed body, right. I could not behold Christ. Right. In this sin-cursed body, uh, if Christ were to walk in the door, I would just be eviscerated. I could not partake of and view and behold His glory. But the Bible says, What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that. When He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Amen. The, the next eye, uh, the next look I take upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be with glorified eyes that will actually be able to behold His glory. And I'll see Him face to face. Glorification. Okay, did this feel like drinking from a fire hose? Just ran through this list. Um, I had to be very careful in my study because I, I wanted to turn you to a portion of Scripture for every one of these to, to show it to you and to prove it to you and to deep dive in it. Uh, but what we're going to do over the next several weeks in this study is we're going to look at each one of these and break them down and look at what it is, what the Bible says about it, how it works, how our salvation is applied and accomplished. And let me just say as, as I close, as I draw this to an end, the overview of the, the ordo salutis, the biblical order of redemption's application, is the framework for the doctrine of salvation. It, it, it is so important that we get this order right. Um, the two major distinctives of this order. There's a few, like, you know, if you want to, if you want to combine sanctification and perseverance, you're, you're, you're not out in left field, okay? Um, if you want to, to kind of say, well, effectual calling and regeneration are, are, are really so similar that it's hard to make a distinction there. Okay, you're not out in left field. But it's imperative that you get regeneration preceding faith. It's imperative that you get regeneration preceding faith. And it's also imperative that you make a hard and fast distinction between election and faith. Because in the Arminian Ordo Salutis, what they do is they flip around... Uh, regeneration and faith, and they equate election with faith. Because what do they say? Well, God looked through the corridors of time. He saw who would believe in Him, and He chose them. So getting this order right or getting this order wrong really will de depend on whether or not you believe God saved you or you saved you. It's as simple as that. So uh, we'll break 
down this, this order, and hopefully we will see uh, how it is that God has saved us and will grow in our comprehension and our appreciation for that in the application of redemption.